As Jay approached the park bench, Viv sunk deeper into the hard wood slats, unconsciously rubbing her inner left forearm. What she wouldn't give for a needle and some medicine, just to take the edge off. Anything to make this horrible feeling go away. The short-haired California woman she had only met a few hours earlier cut through the tension like a ship through waves. Jay, I'm Casey. Nice to meet you. Why don't you have a seat? And Viv can explain everything. Jay remained standing. He looked down at his girlfriend, his pinpoint pupils piercing her courage like an old balloon. She opened her mouth, but the words couldn't come. I, I can't. You tell him, she said. Casey cleared her throat and said with professional efficiency, I'm an interventionist. I've been hired by Viv's parents to inform her that they are no longer willing to support her and your lifestyle. They have given Viv a choice. Either she can come with me to a rehabilitation facility in California, or she can continue down her current path without any of her parents' support. The accounts have been frozen, the credit cards canceled, you will both have 24 hours to leave the apartment. They can't do this to us, Jay exclaimed. Viv clasped his hands between hers and looked into his eyes. With weary resignation, she says, Baby, they already have. Here we go. Roll video. I think anybody creating something new must have an adventure. It's not cinema, it's something else. My advice to a young filmmaker is to make a movie every week. The whole bag of movies can be learned in about a day and a half. But suspense is essentially an emotional process. You gotta, you, gotta, you gotta make films, you gotta make it and get a scene. Cinema for me is a world of when I dream. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Behind the Slate. I am your host, Aaron Strand. That absolutely stunning bit of prose is from the treatment for Withdrawal, our upcoming feature film, which goes into production at the end of August. On part one of our Withdrawal series, I introduced the plan going forward to document our upcoming DIY independent feature film. I also shared my own personal history and how drug addiction and getting sober directly led to my now 10-year journey into becoming a self-taught filmmaker. Now, if you haven't listened to that episode, you may want to go back and check it out. And if you have, uh, I really appreciate you listening. It was uh, a little vulnerable to share a lot of that stuff on the show. Uh, but, you know, some of the people that reached out, uh, I, I really appreciate it. And um, and it, it felt overall like a, a good experience, even though it was a little vulnerable. Um, now, I do have a few corrections from that episode. <clears throat> First of all, my wife is absolutely and definitely in no way shape or form a quote-unquote nerd she is a brilliant ravishing uh, woman filled with with wit and and mirth and um you know, I just wanted to set that record straight. Now, second, uh, I mentioned that I stayed with her briefly while I was homeless, and I think I used the word like I spent two nights with her. Let me be very clear. I slept on the couch far away from her bedroom. Uh, I was definitely not 
forced to make these corrections at all. I just didn't want to give the wrong idea that I was, you know, I was somehow unscrupulously taken advantage of by my host. Anyway, I just wanted to throw those out there. Uh, So uh, moving on. Today, I want to introduce the story of the film that we are working on, talk a little bit about how this project came to be, and then how that process led to uh, a list of goals and guiding principles of our production that I hope will define what success looks like for a project like this. So um, I want to start by telling you a little about this film. Whenever I meet people and they ask what I'm working on, uh, I usually get really self-conscious and, and kind of shy away. <laughs> Maybe that comes from the fact that you know I've been working in the entertainment industry for 15 years, and I don't have a lot of objective success that I can like brag about. Um, but if I do get over that little bit of insecurity and manage to say that I am an independent filmmaker, they'll say, well, what are you working on? I'll say, oh, I'm in pre-production for, uh, for my uh, feature film. And uh, then they may ask, well, what is the film? And this is a... Uh, a terrifying question in the life of, of many a filmmaker, uh, because how do you sum up this kind of giant story that you've been thinking about, you know, presumably for uh, many, many hours of the day? Um, and, and it takes work to get down to this. So what I say now is, uh, well, it's about a passionate young singer-songwriter and her rebellious boyfriend who must withdraw from heroin to keep her conservative parents from sending her to rehab. For those who aren't in the film industry, that is what you would call a log line or a, an elevator pitch. It's, it's a single sentence that introduces the main character, the protagonist. Uh, in this case, we actually have two, uh, the passionate songwriter and her rebellious boyfriend. It introduces the antagonists of the story, in this case, her conservative parents, and the main narrative obstacle that usually takes place at the turn to act two. In this case, it's a, a couple withdrawing from heroin. Now, I get why loglines are important. They, they capture the essence of the story. And they are a tool that helps writers communicate what they're trying to do. But there are literally, at this point, entire books written about how to construct the perfect logline. And I'll be honest, I think the American film industry suffers from a, a severe over-loglinification, loglinitis if you will. And you know, it's, it's tough because it's not like you can't write a logline for 2001 A Space Odyssey or um, In the Mood for Love or even a more conventional film like Dazed and Confused. But a logline doesn't come anywhere close to capturing the magic of what makes those films special. And that's where I have the problem because this industry and its constant emphasis on pitching and, uh, and sales forces writers to spend too much of their time thinking about catchy log lines and kind of buzz getting, you know, conflicts and, and, and two word characters that they don't spend enough time thinking about how to push the boundaries of what can happen in this medium. And I feel like going to see American movies is like eating nothing but leftovers. You know, the meal was satisfying when it was Star Wars A New Hope in 1977, but in 2015, The Force Awakens is like a reheated burrito, and log lines are the microwave that serve up our moist, lukewarm, half-baked films. Anyway, I still work on my log line. I still practice it alone, in the mirror, 
so that when it does come up casually in conversation, I can deliver the single sentence with ease and I don't stumble over my words um, or, or find myself grasping for how to describe this story. Um, and that takes work. And I think it's work uh, worth doing. I also want to say that this particular log line was hugely aided by our producer on this project, Jonathan Walls, uh, whom you will meet in a future episode. Um, so shout out to Jonathan, uh, huge help on this. So uh, say I share my log line and this person who I'm talking to at this theoretical party is still interested in the story. And they say, well, I would, I'd love to hear more about that. Okay. So now I would launch into a longer synopsis of the story and themes. And, and I just want to say that this is yet another sort of trap for filmmakers. Uh, and I think that the trap is twofold. First of all, you know, people don't want to tell their full plot. Um, they're afraid that if they like tell the ending that people won't want to see the film you know, and then so they'll get coy and they like tell the synopsis of the film and try to leave it on some sort of cliffhanger as if the audience is left wanting more. Yeah, I think this is a really bad idea. Uh, you're just like playing coy and kind of hiding the ball of the story. Tell the whole story. People want to hear the whole story. And trust me, they will still want to go see your film. Now, the other mistake that people fall into, which is just the ultimate amateur hour. Well, I don't want to tell the story because I'm afraid someone might steal it. Okay, the film industry is not wanting for ideas, and they're certainly not wanting for your ideas. Keeping your story to yourself out of fear that someone might steal it is like akin to swimming through the giant garbage patch in the Pacific Ocean and insisting that your bottle of Dasani water is somehow very unique and special. Uh, it's just not. So, you know, get out there, tell your story. Now, if you're like still in development, you're not sure, you don't want to share this story, that's a totally personal artistic reason that I think is very valid. Just don't hide your work out of fear that, that someone might steal it. So anyway, having said all that, here is the story of withdrawal. Since they started using heroin, Viv and Jay have seen their once passionate love devolve into vicious codependency. They still cling to the fantasy that they might one day escape their small town of Athens, Georgia, and become famous artists in New York City, but now they spend most of their days sitting around the house, stealing money from Viv's wealthy parents to feed their ever-growing habit. One day, Viv is called to her parents' office, where she is confronted with an interventionist whom her parents have hired to deliver an ultimatum. Either Viv can go to rehab, or she'll be cut off from all financial support. Refusing to let her parents split them apart, Viv and Jay commit to going it alone. All they have to do is kick their $500 a day addiction. Jay takes them to a doctor with the hopes of getting on a drug called Suboxone, but the doctor informs them that he can't give them the pill right away. Instead, they must go 12 hours without using. If they make it through the night, and come back to his office first thing in the morning, he will give them the prescription. Viv and Jay return to their trashed-out home and prepare to endure a night of living hell. If you've never experienced opioid withdrawals, and I really hope to God you haven't, they affect all three areas of your being, mental, physical, and emotional. Physically, you've probably seen in movies and TV shows. The first few hours begin with 
compulsive yawning and watering eyes. This quickly moves on to muscle spasms and cramps. By hour three, the fevers start, along with splitting headaches and a continued lack of bodily control. By hour six, the muscle spasms turn to a pain that gets so deep it feels like your bones are breaking from the inside. Your marrow hurts. Then comes the vomiting and the uncontrollable diarrhea, made all the worse by the fact that opioids have a side effect of constipation, so weeks of blockage is suddenly and unceremoniously dumped. By hour 10, the pain has not abated, but exhaustion and dehydration have turned the boiling fevers into shivering cold. This is the state you will now live in for the next 36 to 48 hours, and if kicking cold turkey, it will slowly dissipate over the next several weeks. Now that's just the physical. The emotional side is worse. You become extremely agitated. The slightest provocation can set off violent or despairing reactions. You rapidly oscillate between anger and hopelessness as the lizard part of your brain uses every trick in the book to try to get you to use the drug again. It has become hijacked by the opium poppy, and like an alien parasite, it will do everything it can to get your body to consume more dope. But I personally find the mental component worst of all. Because your brain, the thinking part of you, the conscious part of you, the part of you that is still you, is filled with shame and regret. Because you have no choice but to confront the harsh reality that you did this to yourself. And as you move through this, all the memories that you've tried to numb, they all come flooding back to your mind. And you drift through them, trying to figure out where it all went wrong. Viv and Jay go through it all, with quite a few surprises along the way, but they make it to sunrise. They're exhausted and suffering, but they're still together. They limp back to the doctor's office and get the prescription. Within 60 seconds of taking the pill, like a miracle, all their symptoms disappear. As they leave the doctor, Jay gets that old hop back into his step. This, he thinks, was actually a good thing. This was the final kick they needed to to get out of this town and take the road of destiny to New York. He instructs Viv to go home and pack, as he's going to go get his old truck running again by stealing a car battery. He returns to the house, triumphant. He finds her suitcase is ready, but as he turns the corner, he comes face to face with the interventionist her parents had hired. He looks to Viv and immediately understands what has happened. She's changed her mind and taken her parents' offer to go to rehab. He doesn't fight her. He doesn't yell. He simply picks up her suitcases and helps load them into the interventionist's trunk. The couple shares a final moment together. 
He asks her, when did you decide? She says, I don't know. She gives him one last embrace before getting in the car. Jay stands in the middle of the road watching as the only person he's ever loved disappears into the distance. He goes back inside and picks through the wreckage of what had once been their life. He grabs a backpack, stuffs in a few dirty clothes and his prescription medication. He gets in his truck and backs out of the driveway. He glances briefly in the direction he last saw Viv and then turns the other way. His gas tank is only a quarter full. He has no money and no plan. He clenches the steering wheel and hits the gas, speeding off into an uncertain horizon. So that is the rough outline of the story. Of course, many other things happen uh, over their night of withdrawal. There are other characters that uh, will come into the fold, and uh, there's other dramas to to play out. Um, But that is the sort of rough overview of what we're working with. Now, this idea is relatively recent. I kind of want to give a little background of it because it's just funny how, how things work like this. So last fall, I was in the final stages of a two-year development process of a neo-noir script that was about a young woman who infiltrates the political campaign of a far-right conspiracy theorist to avenge her mother's death. And I had teamed up with some um, some other collaborators uh, on this project, and we had circled summer of 2023 as a shoot date. And uh, this was a project that I knew would get, take a little bit more funding, and I needed a little bit more support. And I was really counting on these folks to help bring this thing to fruition. And like it happens, uh, they pulled out of the project. And uh, the thing that really bothered me was that they did so via email. And look, I know that this is a, a business of rejection. But the thing that really bothered me was that I had been collaborating with these people for months. And... Uh, they sent me some generic email, you know, that was just sort of like, you know, we're, we're you know, this is not and this is not what we want to work on. Uh, we wish you the best of luck with your future endeavors. And this just really bothered me. I mean, we've been working together for months uh, and I'd known them even longer. It's just show a little backbone and tell me on the phone. I can handle disappointment, but I can't abide by disrespect. And that's what I felt happened here. Um I didn't really know where to turn. That project didn't have any other leads. I had, you know, sent it to almost everyone that I knew, and uh, I just didn't know what else to do with it. I needed more support. Um, And, you know, the other thing was is that I was mourning yet another false start on making my first feature. Every year for the last 10 years, I have made a New Year's resolution that this will be the year I get a feature film made, and every year it hasn't happened. And I, you know, I, I was a little depressed. And, and honestly, I, uh, I was wondering, is there something wrong with me? You know, I've had other projects fall through. I've had other collaborators, you know, choose to go other paths. And so, um, you know, sometimes you're left looking in the mirror like, is, am I the common denominator? And uh, I don't think that's a totally unreasonable question, and we should be looking at ourselves and trying to analyze if, if we are part of the problem. But also, sometimes it may not be true. I mean, sometimes things just happen. Anyway, as I was sort of wading through these emotions, this story just popped into my head. And uh, 
I'll be honest, I was kind of scared of it. Ideas pop into your head all the time uh, when you're when you're an artist, and you're not really sure if they're you don't you don't want to just chase after every idea that comes along like a dog chasing cars, you know, and um, because you need to be prepared that if you catch one and you really start working on it, well, you might be signing up for a multi, multi-year development process. And I was like, oh my God, I just went through that. I don't know if I can do that again. But the idea just kind of kept coming, circling around my brain. And there was a few things that excited me. Number one, the story explored addiction, right? Write what you know is what they say. And this was something I had intimate knowledge of. Uh, number two, it spoke to a broader societal issue, the opioid epidemic. And I have felt ever since that I got sober that this has never been accurately captured on film. I've never seen my experience of, uh, of opioid addiction um, uh, represented. And so I feel that this is a story that, 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 that should be told. And number three was that this story, as it popped into my brain, what I loved about it was that it wasn't about addiction. Yes, it was an addiction story, but what it really was is a love story. Like all love stories, it was built around a single elegant question. Will they or won't they end up together? And the uh, prevailing convention is that if they do end up together, it's a happy love story or a, a comedy. And if they don't end up together, it is a tragedy. But what I really liked about this story was that it ended with this delicious dramatic irony in that the couple doesn't end up together, so the tragic ending, except that it was so clear to the audience that this is actually the happier outcome since these two characters are so clearly poisoned for each other. And I thought that that was a really um, interesting twist to the drug-addled lover story. Because look, like the drug-addled lover story has been told a, a trillion gazillion times. And so it's kind of like if you're gonna, you know, to put it in a different context, it's kind of like if you're gonna make a war film. If you're gonna make a war film, you better be adding something to the war genre. Don't just show me the same war film that I've seen a million times, <clears throat> all quiet on the Western front. Um, it's, what are you giving me? Like, really, what are you adding to this conversation? And I think that's really important. So anyway, I thought there were some inherent advantages to this particular story that were worth exploring. Now, there was another built-in advantage to this whole endeavor, and it's a really important part of the independent film world, and that is funding, okay? A lot of times you might have an idea, but you're like, man, I ain't got no money. I'm like trying to, uh, you know, I'm barely trying to survive out here. How am I ever going to raise money? Well, I was in a circumstance where I actually had some money, but the reason why I, I think is interesting. So uh, about six years ago, I was trying to finish yet another feature film and I had secured $50,000 uh, for a shoot that never ended up coming together. Now, part of that was my fault. I got stuck in a developmental death spiral, trying to write my way out of a, of a, a problem um, that I had made in a prior shoot, and I was trying to write to that shoot. Now, regardless, uh, that didn't work. And then when I was finally ready to start filming, COVID hit, and um, that basically just ruined my budget and shooting plan. 
And I had already purchased a set of vintage contacts, Zeiss lenses, um, and a RAID disk drive for data storage, all for the original film. And that and that left me with about $40,000. So I kept going back to the original investor saying, look, I, I don't think this film is going to happen. I feel terrible. You know, what, what do you want to do? I can give the money back. You know, how should we proceed? And they were kind enough to say, look, just hold on to it and use it on your next film. So... I put the money in a certificate of deposit and I just let it sit there for years, you know, like five years, knowing that it would either fund a film uh, or at least be like seed money to entice other investors to, to pitch in. But this leads into another aspect of this idea that was really exciting, which is that you know, on the previous project, I had felt so dependent on other producers to help raise funds. Um, that it, that when they backed out, you know, it was absolutely devastating. I was dependent upon them for the support I felt that I needed. Whereas this film, I felt could be shot for the $40,000 that I already had in the bank. And that felt like another green light. So I started playing around with the story. I, I wrote it down onto a single page as a treatment. This is always my litmus test to see if a story will work or not. Um, I think it's uh, Stephen Pressfield uh, the writer who talks about if you can write a story on a single page, you probably ha uh, have something there. I then expanded that single page into a five-page treatment. Uh, this is like a, a writing it in a, a sort of prose, but you really try to like cut any dialogue out. You're trying to just write the action of the prose. Um, I started telling my wife uh, what I was working on, and with some tentative giddiness of you know, oh, this feels really good, and I think this idea is really workable, you know. To her credit, and she's just amazing, uh, she encouraged me like she always does. But she also, you know, she was a little more hesitant than I was. She was a bit more sober in her thinking. Um, you know, I think she'd seen, you know, the two-year development process that I just went through. She saw how hard that was. She saw how disappointed I was. And she was sort of trying to caution me about, you know, don't just chase a new idea just because it's shiny and and, and different, And I, and which I, is a perspective that I really appreciated. I kept just chipping away, um, not really committed, but as I wrote, a few things started to become clear on the page. The first was, is that I really cared about the couple, uh, Viv and Jay, and I became fascinated with this idea that they could be a dual protagonist. Now, look, in almost every story that you ever hear, you know, there's one person who carries the narrative mantle. We see the world from their point of view. You know, their POV is the perspective through which we view the world. But I think it is a bit more modern, and I think it's really interesting when films manage to hand off the POV duties like a baton. And I thought that this would be a really cool way to actually tell a more nuanced love story rather than than picking one member of the partnership. Because when you do that, you inevitably make them the hero and force the other partner to be the bad guy or bad girl, whatever whatever it is. And it, it really like forces the binary relationship into this good guy, bad guy dynamic. And and I, I thought we could try to do something other than that. The other thing that was really interesting was that through my own experience of going through withdrawal, I knew that naturally one experiences flashbacks, you know, going back into your memory, trying to figure out where things went wrong. And now 
I generally try to avoid flashbacks in my writing. They're usually unnecessary. It's a it's a waste of time to write these scenes that were really shouldn't be anything except backstory buried into the subtext. Um, and I'll waste days and days and days writing them. Um, but this felt like a situation where the story device of a flashback was actually organic and earned. It was a part of their real life experience and would serve a valuable purpose answering the question of how did these two talented, intelligent, conceivably normal young people get to this point? So I started organizing the flashbacks around the most important moments of their love story. You know, their their first meeting, their meet-cute, their first kiss, their first fight, their first reconciliation, their first time using drugs together. And as I imagined these flashbacks in my mind's eye, they, they started to take on this really saturated kind of dreamlike quality. And... It made sense because, you know, when when we are going into our own memories, we have this kind of subjective tint, these rose-colored glasses that we put on over our memories. But every time I returned to the main storyline, it was like, oh my God, I just felt like tight and gross and dingy. And it was like a more objective, cold way to look at these two people just squirming through this horrible experience. And then an idea came that seemed really dangerous, but really exciting. What if we used this visual difference between the flashbacks and the main storyline? You know, what if form and content could come together, which is one of my favorite things that happens in successful films. So what if we shot the flashbacks on a cine camera you know, whatever we could get a hold of, it might be one of my black magics that I that I that I own, um, or something else. But what if we shot the main storyline using a vintage Digital Eight camcorder? Now, Digital Eight is something that I'm pretty familiar with. It was uh, not only the camera that I made my first movies on when I was in middle school, but I have uh, my own, and I've used it for short films and music videos, and. It's a camcorder that shoots uh, with a cassette. Uh, Inside the cassette is eight millimeter magnetic tape, which can then be digitized. That was the big breakthrough with the digital eight camera. And um, they just have this really unique texture and feel and and kind of desaturated grain to them. And despite what any post-production expert claims, you, you really can't recreate these ephemeral qualities you know in in post you can't, it, it doesn't work in my opinion to take 4k digital footage or 8k digital footage and then like build some sort of like LUT or filter or whatever to try to recreate the look of magne- magnetic tape that just doesn't work and um you know yeah it's just it's dingy and cold but at the same time it's strangely intimate it reminds you of of home movies and birthday parties and and somehow these camcorders just, um, they just have this whole vibe about them. And they have something else that I love. I think they have the creamiest, the most special mechanical zoom ever made. Now, I know there's tons of zooming lenses out there, and there, and there's much clearer zooms, there's much faster zooms, but there's something about the zoom on a Sony camcorder from like, 
2000 to 2004 that is just so special and unique. Um, I just love it. And look, I know that these camcorders are still in use, and in the past couple of years, they've been used a lot by filmmakers to evoke a, a certain 90s nostalgia. I'm not pretending to have discovered this or be the only one who's using it right now. At the same time, the notion that I might finally shoot my first feature film on 8mm magnetic tape from 2003 uh, with an image resolution of 500 pixels felt like, uh, you know, maybe I might be getting out a little over my skis here. Um, so anyway, I, I needed some direction. I needed, I needed to look for inspiration. Maybe I was just looking for confirmation bias. I don't know. Uh, but I rewatched one of my all-time favorite films that I've seen countless times, Thomas Vinterberg's The Celebration. This film was released in 1998, and um, it was the first film shot uh, according to the commandments of the Dogma 95 Manifesto. Uh, and it was shot by uh, a cinematographer named Anthony Dodd-Mantle uh, using a Sony DCR PC3 Handycam, which shot on mini DV tapes. And these are only slightly different formats than digital eight tapes. I've actually tried to use mini DVs, but um, you know, with the technology being 25 years old, I find that the mini DV camcorders have more mechanical failures than the digital eight camcorders. I, I don't know why that is. Regardless, this film, The Celebration, is an absolute revelation. Um, Anthony Dodd-Mantle's camera work adds this just incredible dimension to the film. Um, he, of course, would go on to shoot uh, 28 Days Later, Slumdog Millionaire, for which he won an Oscar. I mean, this guy is a major, major, major cinematographer. But um, what he does with these little handheld personal cameras is, is just it's just incredible and it, it creates a feeling that I prize over almost any other I love it when you watch a film that makes you believe you could make a film and uh, I I'm really on my soapbox today because this is one of the things that I hate the most about Hollywood you don't watch any major motion picture with the feeling wow I could make that and it reminds me of like the difference between uh, I don't know, some like really overproduced like 80s hair metal band or maybe even like um, a Michael Jackson album, which is like <clears throat> so out there. It's very inaccessible. It's like you could never do that. You would never sound like him. You would never produce a beat like him. Whereas you have an album like The Velvet Underground and Nico, which, you know, famously was said, you know, only 30,000 copies were printed. And um, gosh, it's slipping my brain right now, but I can't remember whose quote this was. But uh, they, they said, um, not many people bought the album, but everyone who did started a band, right? You have these pieces of art that have this incredibly inspiring power. Those are the ones that I gravitate more towards. So anyway. As I'm thinking about all these choices and I'm still thinking about this story, I'm, I'm thinking about another thing that I've seen over the years. I have seen so many filmmakers, talented artists, either let their projects die on the vine or, or, or they go all out in confusing the ends with the means when it comes to making their films. And what I mean by that is this. They feel that in order to make their movie, they need something usually some some big camera and a grip truck and uh this huge crew and um 
you know, as if you ha- to make a successful film, you have to have an Ari Alexa mini or something. And um, there are a lot of carrots and sticks of the industry that encourage this. A lot of festivals and shorts websites skew towards this choice. Um, You know, I think even decisions made by Netflix in standardizing elements of their broadcast quality have have trickled down to the world of short films. And somehow, whether consciously or not, you know, where everyone's thinking, oh, well, this has to have a 4K export and we need X, Y, Z. And and I just fucking hate it. I, I hate it all. everything looks the fucking same and it drives me crazy. I think it's just so wrongheaded. I mean, it turns this incredible technology that has been invented to make beautiful imagery into a gimmick. And too often people don't stop and ask if an Ari Alexa or a red dragon or a teal and orange color palette is even appropriate for what they're trying to do. They just know that other people have done it and it has been successful. And cinematographers often push these things onto productions because they don't want to risk looking bad. They want to produce content that they can use in their reel uh, to market themselves, which is a totally understandable choice. I get it. But it just feels like the entire artistic process is being pulled and warped by this very self-centered gravity. And I think that this gravity is also at the core of many of Hollywood's mistakes. It's not being dictated by the gravitational pull of the story, which I think is at the center of most great works of art. So, I want to resist this. I'm not quite sure how. And I definitely don't want to let this idea die on the vine in the hopes of getting some camera I can't afford. So... With all these things swirling around in my head, I just said, I'm leaning in. I'm gonna, we're shooting this main story on a 20-year-old camcorder, and that's it. Anyway, I started watching a bunch of older films, uh, films that I felt would be good examples to follow, both for story content or for a cinematic feel and ethos. Um, these included The Panic in Needle Park by Jerry Schatzberg, Cresha by Trey Edward Schultz, uh, Made in Hong Kong by Fruit Chan, Sid and Nancy by Alex Cox, Trash by Paul Morrissey, Wendy and Lucy by Kelly Reichard, Christian F. by Uli Edel, uh, Naked by Mike Lee, Dusty and Sweets McGee by Floyd. I have no idea how to pronounce his last name. Mutrucks? Matro? I have no idea. Um, and of course, Breaking the Waves by Lars von Trier. And um, I began writing down a bunch of common themes and techniques and production methods that I saw between these movies and also things that I thought, you know, maybe where they they might have gone wrong or or, or things that I couldn't do um, or maybe that weren't applicable in today's market. Anyway, I was just, you know, jotting down a whole bunch of ideas, brainstorming my production. And at the same time, I was working on the Melvin Van Peebles series. And if you've listened to that series, you might recall that before Melvin shot Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, before he ever knew that this this risk of all risks was going to become a, a, a major financial success and, and, and major film milestone, he wrote down a list of principles that would guide his independent production. And he called this his Upfront Aims program. And so, inspired by this, trying to learn from the greats, I wrote my own. And this is pretty much exactly verbatim as I wrote it in my, in my little notebook. Okay. Number one, 
Make do with what we have. I have seen countless projects, brilliant projects, fall prey to addiction. The addiction of more. More money, more cameras, more producers, more names, more guarantees. We will not taste this drug. This movie is getting made with what we have. We don't need anything more. Number two, be fucking honest. Opioid addiction is ravaging our country. In 2021, the NIH calculated that 80,411 Americans died from an opioid overdose. That's a big number, but, but to put it in context, it's almost double the number of people who died in car crashes, and it's about the same number of people who died from diabetes. 80,411 people is about 220 people every day, which means that in America, nine people die every hour from an opioid overdose. In the time it took you to listen to this podcast episode, roughly, nine people have OD'd and died. Each one of them had parents, they had families, they had brothers, they had sisters, spouses, children. They were people. And now they're gone. And it's happening every hour. We have to be fucking honest about what's happening in our country. But in order to be honest about these big things, we first have to be honest about the small things. And that means that honesty and transparency has to permeate all business, all promotion, all collaboration around this film. We will not have secrets in this production. We will not pretend to be anything other than what we are. Number three, art comes first. As a filmmaker, you spend most of your life eating big bowls of other people's shit. Shitty ideas, shitty marketing strategies, shitty gimmicks, all designed to imitate other people's shitty success. We don't have to eat shit here. This is one of the rare opportunities where we have creative freedom. So why not fucking take advantage of it? Number four, invite the recovery community, but not the addicts. Avoid active junkies at all costs. And this really gets into authenticity. Authenticity comes from a unique point of view and lived experience. That's it. It's all you need to be authentic. However, that doesn't mean we need to bring in active addicts uh, because junkies have this incredible ability to destroy everything they touch. And uh, we don't need this in this film project. Too many films about addiction put their sets at risk by hiring real drug addicts or placing actors amongst real drug addicts. Why? We believe that realism is a theatrical construct. We believe in theater more than we believe in pretentious and unnecessary risk-taking just as a way of proving how authentic we are. We can access the truth of the drug experience in other ways. Which brings us to number five, instincts, instincts, instincts. This will guide our decision-making. At its core, the mind of a junkie has devolved into a more animal state of being. Any human pretense is sacrificed to the one true need. So to tell a junkie story, all we need to do is think like one. 
Number six, respect their time and effort. First and foremost, we must respect our audience. There's two things that I hate, a filmmaker who doesn't respect my intelligence and a filmmaker who doesn't respect my time. Know what you wanna say and keep it moving. We respect our audience by not dumbing down or sugarcoating our material, and we will not rely on cheap shock tactics. We will respect our audience by putting them first, not potential producers or potential distributors or the film festivals and what we think they wanna see. We will not bow down to their mechanical ideologies of self-censorship and what works. Respect is something that can be felt by an audience through a film. And we believe that it flows down from collaborators to the audience. Therefore, if you respect your cast, you respect your crew, you respect your company by respecting their time, safety, and artistry, you are respecting the audience. Number seven, don't trust the game. The game of film wants you to play for buzz, for short-term gains, and to climb the ladder of success, believing it eventually leads to art. You don't have to play that game if you don't want to. And finally, number eight, all ships must rise. How many wannabe Tarantinos and counterfeit Kubricks speak collaboration with their tongues, but imagine themselves on stage accepting their Oscar all alone? In order to create a respectful and communal experience, this project must find collaborators whose goals and aspirations align with the project so that their labor in bringing this story to life also helps them achieve their dreams. This may sound like a bunch of idealistic do-gooderism, and in a way it is. I'm happy to own that. But let me be very clear, this is not because I don't want this film to make money. I am not trying to make some political or ideological statement about how art should be freed from the capitalist system in which it operates. I, I want the film to make money. I am pro the capitalist element of film. I am pro the fact that films can provide to their creators. It's more about redefining what success is and then identifying tangible avenues to achieve it. I believe that the only path to success with the means at our disposal is to make a truly compelling, uh, inventive, and artistically moving film that makes an audience feel something other than boredom, apathy, or a general desire that they wish the film would just get on with it and end. To do that, I am trying to identify our inherent advantages and the things that we can control, to focus on them and really invest in them and not take them for granted, and then trying to identify the easy pitfalls that I have seen doom countless other projects. Will it work? Can we pull it off? Stay with us and see what happens. Behind the Slate is an official podcast of the Arroyo Film Club. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, rate, 
and review. Please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It goes such a long way. Hit us with the five stars. Write a few words. I would be so grateful if you did. If you have any questions, comments, you just want to say hi, shoot me an email, behindtheslatepod at gmail.com. That's behindtheslatepod at gmail.com. Now, you can follow us on Instagram at behindtheslatepod or TikTok at behindtheslatepod. You can also now follow the film's official Instagram at withdrawal film, which I will have linked down in the show notes. Until next time, that's a wrap. Yeah, and I don't bother nobody. But they're all the time talking about me.